When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Previously on Electric Boogaloo. His face looks like it's both upside down and inside out somehow. Yeah. And and oddly attractive. I, I, don't, I don't know why All you're right. calling him ugly. Uh, you and I definitely have different tastes in princes. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, a professorial double dip with Jana Matthews, covering Danny's first POV chapter. And we'll also include a short snippet of my interview with Dr. Gregory Webster. Jana is a medievalist. Greg is a psychologist. And then in between that, we'll hear from Steve he and I are re-watching the first season of the HBO adaptation. If you'd like to send in any feedback or questions for me or Steve, you can send that to book at baldmove.com. And now our very first look at Daenerys Targaryen with Dr. Jana Matthews. Welcome, Jana. I'm so glad to have you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored and thrilled to be here. Absolutely. And so you're right in between. You just finished your class on Chaucer, right? Yes, I did. And do you have anything later today that we can be excited about? So we can be really excited about the fact that I, um, oh, I'm just about ready to start a conference paper. I leave tomorrow for India to give a conference paper on kind of this medieval mystic. Yeah, so it's it's a it's kind of a work day. All right. So I have to ask, name of medieval mystic. So the name of the medieval mystic, so I'm, the one you will know is Joan of Arc. And then I'm um, contextualizing her within a broader legend because there's a medieval mystic who was popular in the third and fourth century. So it's a little early, like almost pre-medieval over in Vietnam. And because of French colonialism, she's since been known as the Vietnamese Joan of Arc. So anytime you uh, liken anybody to yeah, a to Joan of Arc, I'm sort of like going to go all in and investigate. Yeah. yeah. And of course, if, if the person's not familiar to European lore, then they have to get compared to someone in the European lore, right? Absolutely. And basically it is, you know, any female who takes up a sword is likened to Joan of Arc. And so, right, right we have Brienne of Tarth, who clearly fits into that role with the, with Game of Thrones. So it's a yes. sort of an, an easy fit, basically the only fit. Right, right. So yeah. we are going to talk about chapter three, Daenerys Targaryen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give a synopsis. Go for it. We're introduced to Danny. Clearly, she's a very young girl. And she is... she's an, Yes, she's anticipating her wedding day. And all of a sudden, we're thrown into this very dysfunctional relationship between Danny and her older brother, Viserys. He's commanding her. He's basically telling her what she has to do to be prepared for her wedding day. He gropes her. He, I, I don't know how else we describe mm-hmm. this. Mm. He assaults her. Yep. And she 
is clearly put in pain by it, but we don't see that she's surprised by it. So this is something that probably happens quite a bit. We see that she's had expected to marry Viserys at some point because that is the tradition of the Targaryens. And then we have this scalding hot bath scene and we see her prepped for the wedding day with the new gown and she is foisted into this public and very ritual setting where she notices that she's the only woman there. So this is basically a, this is a social event with all men and she, she freaks out. She basically decides, I don't want to marry Cal Drogo. We hear all kinds of terrible information about Cal Drogo that's impressive on the one hand, but very scary on the other hand. And then, of course, Viserys takes her aside and basically says, look, you have to do this. is the only way I'll get my kingdom back Mm -hmm. is if I marry you off and I really don't care what happens to you. So, I mean, at one point he says, look, I don't care how he mounts you. I don't care who he, mm-hmm. he, you know, it could be him and his Kalasar and all of his horses. And this is how we're introduced to a very key character, but in a very tragic and very powerless way. So we can talk about any elements that I've missed here, but we have a, a couple ways into this particular very complex character. And I'm wondering... As a medievalist, yeah. what about this particular chapter struck you? So much. And I think that there's really no age and period in the past where there was a really good time to be a woman. But the, the Middle Ages was particularly gruesome and particularly difficult. And so, you know, what you see here is Danny, you know, at one time she was actually referred to as chattel or chattel. And I was, I appreciate that term because that is exactly, you know, how she is. She is an object that is to be traded between men, um, you know, mm-hmm. for the interests of, of political expediency. And so she's part of this arranged marriage, which was par for the course for, she's described as a princess here. And, um, you know, for high ranking women, they were never expected to kind of marry for love. Like marriage for love actually is a 20th century invention. So we, so I, I think that mm-hmm. we, there's a very, very long history of marrying for utilitarian purposes. But, you know, I'm reminded so much, like she's ripped straight from the pages of, you know, medieval marriage texts over and over and over again. Like Chaucer has entire sequence in the Canterbury Tales and all, seven or eight of his stories have to deal with women who are put in, you know, arranged marriages and the, the horrible things that happen to them as a result of that. But also just the fact that it's so common and so typical that the status is just profoundly normal. And the scene that's most striking is when she realized, to me anyway, Mm -hmm. the scene that was most striking to me was when she realizes that she is the only woman in this event. Yeah. It really does give you the sense that this is... her role in this whole affair is is made very clear to her, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, she's in one sense. Here, you know, her body is the entertainment in this space of men. So I think the image of kind of the contemporary strip club comes to mind, where you know this beautiful woman who's adorned and decorated and uh, you know cleaned and polished up to look kind of like the, the object of desire is and paraded before men. So there's this the sense of a spectacle that's happening, and she's definitely being surveyed. And you know, but she's also there and and just kind of I mean I hate to use that the metaphor, but sort of like a. a you know, exotic dancer, like is is on display for men and is something that is is essentially being there to be sold to the highest bidder. That's right. And she's being yeah. prompted. She's being prompted yeah. by Viserys. Put your shoulders back. Yep. They have to see you're a woman. When, they want to see business. They want to yeah. see your boobs. And yes. you know, like that's that's very much a part of him. You know, the, the even the cleansing process before takes particular attention to clean in and, and mark and highlight the genital regions and the parts mm-hmm. that you know that emphasize her femininity. I just read this part. Daenerys looked at them all in wonder and realized with a sudden start of fear 
that she was the only woman there. This sort of prompts her to have a, a second take, a, a different a different view of this. Uh, not that she was super excited about getting married at 13 prior to this, but now she sort of feels this upwelling fear. And immediately she starts telling people, I don't, I don't want to be his bride. That This is not what I want. She has basically zero agency in this arrangement. You know, a cool way that I think that that chapter signals it is so, you know, she's talking with the, the women, the slaves who are, are bathing her and they're gossiping about Cal Drogo and his men. And they say, well, you know, he's so rich that even his slaves have collars made mm. of gold. Mm. And as they put, you know, they end up putting a, a collar on her mm-hmm. and she has this kind of self-reflective moment of like, Ugh. you know, and then she gets in there. And one of the first things that she notices is when Cal Drogo's slaves come in and all of his men. And she notices that she's that that story that she's been told is just that and mm-hmm. that they are actually wearing collars made of brass. And so this whole sense of that. The well, of- and she's wearing a collar, right? Exactly. And she's wearing it's a, a collar. golden collar and it's, it's not collar. a brass yep. collar, but yep. It still yep. represents the fact that she is now she has been owned if she whether she knew it or not, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now she's owned by someone else. Mm-hmm. One hundred, yeah, that's exactly what's happened. Right, so her slave status is is this sort of the moment of recognition when she realizes that she's that that collar that she's wearing is not for ornament. <laughs> okay, I need to ask you. I have this this gut reaction to Cal Drogo that he is being consciously fashioned after Attila the Hun. Um, yeah, that is a, that is an absolute alignment, I think, of what most historians and, and critical thinkers think. It's, it's a combination of Attila the Hun and then also with, we, we also have a, a lot of Native American lore um, yeah. and legend and sort of the horsemen and the topography of their landscape and the the ceremony of their dress and stuff is absolutely pulled from a combination of both of those things. Yes, yeah. right. So correct me if I'm wrong, and I absolutely am sincere about that. If I get any of this wrong, please do correct me. So Attila is, we're really in the 400s current era with Attila, and Attila has basically emerged from this nomadic clan, but has really almost conquered all of the known world, except for Constantinople. Yeah, and I mean, he's in yeah, direct. Go ahead. On, yeah, right. That, that's that's exactly right. And he's up against Alexander. He, yes, and so much so that there are some really key Roman cities that are that are paying like you know seven hundred pounds of gold mm-hmm. annually to Attila, just like Pentos is paying to uh, Caldrogo. And basically, it's just, we are going to pay you annually not to invade us. He's a nomadic warlord, and that happened, and it was standard operating procedure and fundraising practices up until the you know 14th and 15th century. So if you even go up to Holy Roman Empire, the Habsburg Empire, up and down the Rhine, you know, there's a reason why there's castles uh-huh. every five feet is because they, they were river barons. And so this is like, right, in a foreshadowing of what's happening all over Europe. But yes, that's exactly what's happening. So clearly there are other parallels, like the, the Huns are master horsemen mm-hmm. and they've got these bows that are double bound so that the that the arrows can penetrate certain kinds of armor. But he's rumored to have innumerable wives. I, yeah, I think that there's there's some sort of, there's also this romanticized notion of Attila the Hun. And as somebody that is incredibly scary and frightening, he's borderline other and, you know, yes. kind of white walker in the sense that he lives in the margins. He and his army are pressing down and coming from all different angles. And yeah, he's a boogeyman, right? Yeah, they're encroaching. And so he did, this is an 
we've got the Targaryens who are incredibly desperate at this point. They would never, never, ever normally partner with somebody like that. But then he, it is it is expedient to partner with a barbarian if the barbarian can give you something better to keep your enemies close. And so this represents interesting interaction and kind of creative revision uh, or commentary on sort of European, the West's engagement with the East for the first time. And the subversion of this notion that the civil and noble societies Mm -hmm. are in Europe and that these barbarians are just have to be dealt with. I mean, clearly someone like Drogo or Tilla the Hun, these, these, these are people, these are for, not just formidable people, these are people that simply destroy the notion of superiority, right? Yes, yes. And I think that you've got Danny's brother who, you read that kind of very graphic passage that or, you know, glossed it where he was talking about like, mm. you know, the, the violence that he doesn't care happened to her body. We've got the myth and the lore of Attila the Hun or the, you know, the Cal Drogo and, and company who are rumored just to be vicious, nasty warlords who kind of just can, you know, kill at will and have this, you know, they're, they're killing machines. And, and then, you know, that is sort of coupled with Varys, who's very openly fantasizing and is totally uh, blunt about the fact that he is completely okay with the fact that his sister gets gang raped, that her body is, Drogo can do whatever he wants to. And so there's, it's, it's this subtle, but very poignant moment where Martin's asking us to think in really critical terms about the civilizing powers of the West and the narrative that we've talked about and we've built up for ourselves versus the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the other here, I think, means Cal Drogo, but because we're on the face of right after the prologue and we're thinking about these other mythical beings who we know very little about and who inhabit similar lands and similar areas, that also invites us to raise early on some pretty deep questions about the White Walkers. Right, good. And so we're seeing something of a parallel in these chapters mm-hmm. about what's going on in the land of ice and what's going on in the land of fire. Yes. Um, so Viserys, in some ways, he's sort of the classic bully in the sense that he's totally insecure, right? He has this notion of himself as the king, but other people call him a beggar king. Mm-hmm. He's lost, he's basically lost everything. He's lost his wealth. He's lost any sort of political support, except for what Illyrio can provide. And the only thing that he, I mean, even his sword is borrowed. At one point in the chapter, he says, that he's sort of gripping his borrowed sword. And what a great parallel to yeah. to the chapter before where we have just a long paragraph of Ned, you know, stroking the sword. I and mean, there's a sexual illusion for you, right? But he's cleaning the sword and he's, <laughs> you know, and he's, he's playing with the sword and he, you know, he, like, he just can't stop talking about it. And it's sort of well, very visible. His, yes. Yeah. And it's his ancestral sword. It, right. right. So there's and masculinity versus impotency. Yes. That's exactly right. And then, of course, the only thing that Viserys actually has control over is his little sister. And so he's going to try to squeeze as much value out of her for his own political aim as he as he can. But you just, several times in this chapter, you see how weak and how how emasculated Viserys actually is, just the way that he's described. Yeah, there's, well, I think my very favorite line from that chapter is when Viserys tells Danny, he says, you know, this is think he's before he's, kind of pushing her into the, the, the stage where she's going to be confronted with Cal Drogo. And he says, go and write the history of my reign. Yes. And you know, there is, it's like, he can't write his own history. He is completely and totally impotent. He has no ability to do anything himself. Mm-hmm. The only thing that he can do, you know, his fate is completely bound up in the marketability of his sister. And it's a little bit, we have a little bit of foreshadowing here too, because of course we know from from reading forward that this is the beginning of Danny's story, right? Mm-hmm. This is not the beginning of his story. 
Yes, um, good point. I like a point. Okay, some notable introductions in this chapter. Danny, of course, is a child bride. Her violet eyes and her silver hair. The notion of Viserys waking the dragon. Hear that uh, <laughs> repeated over and over again. The, his status as the beggar king. Illyrio blesses her. The words, the Lord of Light. Mm-hmm. And we hear mentioned to the, the red priests and their night fires. And of course, this is gonna, isn't going to become a larger theme until the second book, right? But we yep. hear it right at the beginning. Pentos and her towers. Caldrogo. The mention of the usurper. So we saw in the previous chapter with Catelyn a, a reference to the Mad King Eris. So they're sort of the political propaganda from a Westerosi perspective. And then, of course, from the Targaryen's perspective, they refer to King Robert as the usurper. Of course, polished skulls of the dragons and the Kingslayer is mentioned. Rhaegar, the Unsullied. We hear about Targaryen incest for the first time and blood riders. And we, of course, are introduced to Sir Jorah Mormont. All right, so with uh, Danny's chapter, show differences, uh, I think the, the most notable of these are that is just her age. Yes. Right? Yeah, th- there's a huge difference between thinking about Danny as a 13-year-old, do- 13-year-old girl going through this and an adult woman, um, yes. you know, profound. And I, I think that when you start thinking about the influence of the, the text or start looking at Danny's script and her narrative, seeing her, seeing this that this arranged marriage and kind of the trauma of this happened to her at a, as a young girl helps go a long way in explaining some of the, you know, the, the grudges that she has, the animosity that she has built up later on, the, the compassion that she has. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, bringing, scaling it back five or 10 years is, is an is important omission that I think. Well, I think, do. and I think it's a con, I think there's something conscious that's going on here. I think number one, I think, this is a very important role. Do you want the weight of this role to be on a child actor? Mm-hmm. So there, there's that. Sure. You've got a lot of other child actors in the show. This one particular, do, you know, you might want someone that's more mature. Secondly, I think that it'd be really easy to hate Cal Drogo yep. if you see him being wedded to a 13-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that, that for me, that would, have, that would have just made me hate him from the start. Yeah, this is a, a conscious attempt of the showrunner to know its particular audience and saying that even though we can displace the, the, the show and the text to this historical moment of the nebulous past for mm-hmm. contemporary standards of age-related marriage and pedophilia and all that stuff are maybe don't apply, we still have to read and watch this through yeah. our own eyes. And that's just an, that, that is a leap that we just as a society, an American society, can't get over. Um, I think there's also this, the show is, especially in that first season or the first few episodes of, the, of season one, are, are very, very committed to capturing the male gaze. So there's good sex and bad sex. And that they're heavily, you know, in debt, like committed to the idea of uh, like heterosexual adult soft porn sex, you know, like, yeah. and, and, I, and I think that in order to do that, you have to have Danny be an adult. <laughs> well, okay, yes. In fact, <laughs> in fact, even extending that, the fact that she's an adult allows this key theme that we find in the book and in the show uh, to play out in a different way. So in both the book and the show, Danny ends up falling in love with him, right? Yep. So as a book reader, I know that this is a very 
this is probably misplaced for at least for my culture you know where where romance has to proceed a wedding engagement and sure. then everything is nice and neat in that way to see Danny fall in love with her tormentor is a much different experience in the book because you kind of get the sense of well she's 13 yeah the fact that Danny falls in love with her captor or her master or something like that is much more complicated if she's 13 than if she's a little bit older. Yeah. Not to say that it's not problematic anyway. Well, we like to imagine the fact that as an adult woman, that she has agency and choice in the show and that even if it is an arranged marriage, that there's also sort of some, some way out. And even, and I think that that eliminates that possibility when you have a 13 year old girl playing that part. And so, yeah, it, you know, it's messy in the book. The show kind of stitches together or, you know, fix solves a lot of problems by making Danny an adult woman um, mm -hmm. Also, it endows her with the kind of agency and power that and maturity that one would imagine, you know, kind of being able to lead an army, which is, again, unless you want to go to the Joan of Arc trope, um, you know, which that, that role has already been reserved for another character, mm -hmm. um, is it's going to be hard to carry through. You know, he's, he's right. got a big, he's got a big plan. And so he needs the time in the book in order to have her grow from 13 to adulthood and um, where the show is, is not bound and it doesn't need that kind of time. All right, Jana, it was so fascinating. I would love to have, if you're up for it, I'd love to have you back on. I would absolutely love it. This was a joy and a pleasure. And I think we, we know we rarely get the opportunity to talk and kind of blur the line between academic speak yes. and between pop culture speak. And so like, this hour has flown by and I was like, this was dang fun, like way more fun than any of their kind of conversations I've well, been prepping for this conference paper. And I'm yeah. like, this is going to be boring as hell. That, I mean, that really was sort of my thinking, my thinking, you know, I bet you academics would really like to have a little bit of fun and talk oh, about this. Because... Yeah, it's like a dream. And so I, I think it's, we get to demonstrate and sort of showcase our close reading and maybe illuminate some of interesting things. Uh -huh. But also, I mean, I learned a lot from listening to you and it's just a reminder of the applicability of this to everyday life which sometimes we get lost in when we're kind of stuck in our specific historical moment so thank you like i'm always on board you know you've got okay. a long you've got a long text to get through <laughs> so oh, I'm sure yeah so if there's any interest at all in this thing we're gonna have to talk several times about the book i'm happy to help you in any way and i'm glad that you're doing it it's just a cool project Taking a break from the book, we'll head up north to see what's going on with Lord Snow. This is episode three with comic Steve Osborne. I'm here with Steve Osborne, longtime friend of mine. Hi. Steve, today we are covering episode three, Lord Snow. Lord Snow, doing? indeed. And Steve, there's a lot of sword play and talk about sword play in this episode. Yes, that is accurate. All right, now this is going to seem like an odd. <laughs> it's going to seem like an odd segue, but we began our freshman year at Annalee High School in 1990. 89, I believe. Oh, 80? No, we graduated. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. All right. Assuming that we met before our high school year, we've known each other for about 30 years, probably more than 30 years. That is accurate. So I know things about you that other people may not know, and one of the things that I know about you is that as a young man, you studied the art of fencing. That is correct. Yes, I did do some fencing. And you I fenced. Were, not in the uh, Better Call Saul sort of way. <laughs> yeah, that, no, not that I'm willing to admit on this podcast, no. And you weren't so bad. You were pretty good at fencing. Yeah, it was decent. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't like I, I did many years of fencing, but I was good when I did it and I enjoyed it. I just learned there wasn't a lot of money in it. And so I went on to, to comedy instead. That's, su that's surprising <laughs> and ironic. <laughs> 
did you have different eyes than the rest of us when you were watching these these sword play scenes because of your expertise? <laughs> uh, I, it was definitely, especially the, the, the training scene at the end. Um, that resonated. I, I enjoyed that, like all the different, like your dead moment. Ah, that. so you're talking about the first lesson between the beloved Cyril Farrell and Arya Stark. Yes, that is, that is accurate. I would not have been able to remember those names, so I appreciate you jumping in on that. Uh-huh, absolutely, absolutely. And it occurs to me now that in episode three, we've met almost every character that's important for this first season. I think that there's one major character that is yet to be introduced. But yeah, I think you've seen all of the faces of the actors, at least, even if you don't know their names. Right. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to talk a little bit about the small council. So Robert's the king. He's got a small council. And Ned shows up into King's Landing, and he's handed the king, so he's supposed to take charge of this small council. But I think that for first-time viewers, and that would be you, it may not be as obvious who's on this small council and what their jobs are. Mm-hmm, right. Okay, so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to tell you the titles of these members of the small council, and then I want you to pick one for yourself. Right? Oh, so we're okay. going to see w- which one best suits Steve Osborne. All right, now we're going to leave off Hand of the King because everyone wants to be in charge, of course. So uh, well, I understand that the Hand of the King wipes. I don't know if that's... This is something that we're all considering during the COVID-19 era, right? right? Yeah, I mean, the hand of the king definitely has a different role in a shelter in place. I mean, the hand of the king can't touch the king's face anymore. Uh, That's for certain. Okay, so master of coin. Okay. This is the guy that owns the brothels. Uh, All right. Peter Baelish. All right, so all right, good. And uh, master of whisperers. How does that sound to you? (laughs) That sounds, it sounds like a a slightly homoerotic heavy metal band. I would be all in. I would be all in on Master of Whisperers. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so this is the, the bald guy with the flowing gowns. This is Varys. Yeah. And Master, what Master of Whisperers does is he's the chief spy. I think okay. You probably yeah. know that. He's just, right. he's the town gossip. Yeah, that's exactly what he is. He's the town gossip. All right. So then there's the Master of Laws. Mm-hmm. And this is Brenly Baratheon. He gave Ned a big hug. His is actually Robert's younger brother. Okay. I think that's self-explanatory, Master of Laws. He's There's, the narc. He's the narc. That's, that's right. And then finally, Grand Maester Pycelle was the old guy with the long beard who's carrying messages around. and mm-hmm. Something of a, of a dotard, at least on the surface. But he, was the, but he was a Grand Master at one point, so sort of like Grand Master Flash. He's Grand Maester Flash. I think Grand he Maester. would want you to get that right. Got it. All right. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So, of all of these different titles, Master of Coin, Whisperers, Laws, Ships, or Grand Maester, which do you think would be best suited for you? That's a tough one because, I mean, they, they, we spend a lot of time talking about the Master of Whispers, and I do like to talk a lot of mess, but I'm just, you know. It would I, require you to use your mess in a very strategic way. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think there's a part of me that already does that because, you know, I, mean, I, I talk behind a lot of people's back, and they, and they think I'm on their side. So I feel like I'm already, like, Good. ready for that. But, man, Grand, grand <laughs> Maester. Yeah, Grand Maester. That sounds that's, pretty awesome. Yeah, I don't even care. You know, even if I am considered a daughter, it's like, yeah, but he's like, that's on your headstone. That's that, true. So I, I think I'm going to go. I, I would say that I am the Master of Whispers, but I aspire to be the Grand Maester. If there is such a thing as a Grand Maester of Whispers, then I mean, that's kind of like the best of all worlds. But You know what? 
I think you're going to like this show. I think that you're going to really like this show. <laughs> All right. So anything strike you about the episode? that? Uh, it- yeah. Well, this, this whole episode, this probably of the three is the one that's hooked me the most. And you could argue that maybe in terms of like action and incest, that happens the least. So, I mean, you know, considering mm-hmm. what normally floats my boat, but this had some really rich dialogue. And I, the, the theme of like, what do you, I guess, like transition and inevitability was so, was so prevalent. And it was just, it was, a, I think it was really well done. And especially like the younger characters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, it's a, it, this is like a turning point for each one of them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I love the juxtaposition of, I know what Prince Joffrey, like he's, he's got a little ouchy boo-boo, but his mother's like kind of forcing him to grow up faster. On the flip side, Ned brings his daughter a doll and she's growing yes, up. She I wants to it. grow up now. And so there's, so that was an interesting juxtaposition. You've got, got Jon Snow taking on this. He's, he's the king of the bastard. So okay. I'm glad that you mentioned this. Try this on for size, all right? So Bran doesn't show up much in this episode, but the other these other characters I think are all in transition and they're all sort of between either social classes or life stages. So let's go right. through. So Lord Snow, I think right there, you've got in the title, Snow is the name you give bastards in the north. So that's a lower class name, but He's got a title with it, suggesting that he's in between two social classes. Sure. And Sansa it clearly is between childhood and womanhood. I would think so. You know, 13, but trying to prepare for being the next queen. Right. And then I think Arya is sort of on this gender border. Where, exactly. Where she she certainly doesn't, not, not that this is sexual at all, it's, it's simply about gender. She simply doesn't like all of the things that are being forced upon her and the expectations of becoming a lady. Right. So she sees that through her older sister's lens, right? So, I mean, like, she's obviously upset about her older sister not being forthcoming during the whole, uh-huh. you know, slow trial. But I think that, you know, I, I took too, is that, that she sees that as sort of like a foreboding tale for her. Like, I don't want to have to go down and, and have my future be dictated by trying to please, not even, like I said, not even suggesting like a man versus woman. It's just the idea of this subservient role that does not appeal to her. And so she's just flat out trying to refuse it. Well, if you think about it, the life of a unmarried knight where you can kind of be virtuous and be a man of honor and it may kill you, but you don't have to play the political games nearly as much. You just right. try to do what's right, and if it costs you your life, it costs you your life. Being a highborn woman in this world means that you're constantly playing politics and you're constantly negotiating the blunders and lies of your husband, right? Right. So you're, I think you would you do well. I think you would do well as a highborn lady in this world, Steve. Oh, I, I think so. I think I conduct myself like a highborn lady. I may be a middling lady, but uh, you know, you dress for the job you want. Again, again with the the aspirational. T- title exactly yeah it's all it all comes together steve the other thing about this episode as i'm psychoanalyzing you (laughs) is that there's not even a whiff of magic in this episode Uh, yeah it's all about class it's all about politics it's all Uh, about family dynamics yeah that's fair i guess that there is some sort of derision of superstition sure Um, yeah yeah as Tyrion uh, kind of conflicts with ben jen stark but even so, I feel like even though we know that there are monsters beyond the wall, we really have a lot of empathy for Tyrion's derision of the superstition. Yeah, no, I agree. 
So I think that the fact that this episode grabs you suggests to me that you really like the intrigue and you're kind of up for tolerating a little bit of magic here and there. I think that that probably sums up my entire, uh, you know, life and theology. Yeah. Oh, oh is that right? <laughs> So now we're, we, did, we haven't just dipped into your psychology. We've dipped into <laughs> to your religious upbringing. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I would go to church and I was always interested in maybe some of the stories, but eh, the miracles and the magic. You yeah, were Kevin. really interested in parlaying the knitting circles against the pastor to overthrow him. <laughs> yeah, give me a good Friday, but uh, I'd rather sleep in on Easter. <laughs> Not just that. You might incite Good Friday. <laughs> really? I, that, that, yeah, there's, there's a little bit more swordplay. All <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Anything else on this episode before we wrap this up? I don't think so. I think that covered I mean, it, it, was, it was just rich. I liked it a lot. All right. You have a, you have a great day, Steve. All right. You too. And now an excerpt of my interview with Professor of Psychology, Gregory Webster. So with me is Gregory Webster. Greg is a professor of psychology at University of Florida, and he's actually taught a class on Game of Thrones. I love talking with Greg because Greg has an interesting perspective on these characters and their motives, the perspectives that we would expect for someone that's both intelligent and creative. In addition to that, Greg, you have a few interesting fan theories on George Martin's world. Yeah, so I have, um, I have my own like really weird pet theory about a character that doesn't really generate much interest in terms of being a dynamic one. I love it already. Yeah, but I think, um, uh, this, you're probably going to hate this. I think Drogo. Yeah. Uh, I think Drogo is a more interesting character than he lets on to be. And I think there's a good chance that we'll find out eventually that he's not who we're led to believe he is. Really? Yeah. So it's, so first of all, like the first thing that George Martin released was uh, this novella, which is just the Daenerys chapters of Game of Thrones. Huh. So even though he wrote like, I guess, one or two brand chapters first, the first thing he chose to publish on its own was just the Daenerys point of view chapters from Game of Thrones. And, that, you know, they take place on this, you know, separate continent and there's not any interaction really between Daenerys chapters and all the other point of view chapters in the the first book. But Drogo's kind of interesting because we're told very little about his background and what we're mostly told is all through uh, Daenerys's point of view. We know Daenerys is, I mean, all the point of view characters are a little bit unreliable in terms of their narratives. I think Daenerys is somewhat more unreliable than the average one. Hmm. Uh, and, and she's also very young. Yeah. And I think she's being manipulated. She was definitely being manipulated by Illyrio Opatis. And so basically everything she learns about Drogo is she, she's learning through Illyrio and or secondhand from uh, Viserys, who's presumably been talking with Illyrio as well. And Illyrio's very, very slimy character or not slimy but just in terms of he's he's definitely deceptive the only thing we know about him is that he is a uh, he's a political animal in the sense that he's he's got all these machinations and 
he's like the string that pulls the puppets. Yes, he's a puppet master. Right. And I'm in, I'm not even entirely convinced that the character that he's portraying himself as is really the quote unquote real him. So far as we know, he's just this cheesemonger who's, you know, a really good trader and merchant who lives in Pentos and he's, you know, extremely wealthy. That's about all we know about him, but I think there's more to it than than meets the eye. It's like why is he why does he have all these schemes where he's trying to support these ex-Targaryens and trying to get them to evade Westeros so that he can allegedly be master of coin as he ends up telling Tyrion several books later. I mean, it doesn't really make much sense. So he's not revealing his motives, for one thing. So anyway, getting back to to Drogo, we learn that one of the first encounters we have is this this wedding between Daenerys and and Drogo. And I think in the the books, I think they they had to do some budget cutting for the... uh, for the show, but in the books, I think it takes place at uh, his at Drogo's manse, which is this huge palace that's built like on the grounds or adjacent to Illyrio's place. Yeah, and it's kind of like, well, well, wait, why would a Dothraki horse lord want or need a permanent home when they're all nomadic? It's like this seems really, really weird. It's like, why does he have a house there? And why is Illyrio so close with this Dothraki horse lord? It doesn't really make much sense. And we're, we're led to believe that he doesn't, he doesn't really understand much in terms of the common tongue, in terms of, you know, Westerosi language. But by the end of the book, he actually ends up kind of speaking it pretty well. I almost wonder if this is a bit of a ruse where he's just kind of pretending not to understand things. The other big thing that's really weird about the wedding is all the people that are there. There are, I think, scores of really, really important people, not just from in and around the local area, but from all these people from, you know, all over Essos and, you know, a few people from Westeros and, you know, really, you know, important people. And we're led to believe that this is, because it's the very beginning of the book, we don't know anything, that, oh, they're there because Danny's an important person, because we're told that, you know, Danny's this princess. But what if they're actually there because Drogo's some sort of important person whose identity has been veiled from us? We've been told that he's a Dothraki warlord, which he, he definitely is. But what if he's also something else in addition to that? Are you suggesting, Dr. Webster, yeah. that Cal Drogo is a secret Targaryen? Either that or Blackfire. <laughs> I'm not sure which, but we're told specifically, <laughs> yes, another one, <laughs> we're told specifically uh, later on by Illyrio, I think, when he's talking with... Um, Just to rewind for a second on this, yeah. the Blackfire Targaryens are... Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh-huh. are a line of Targaryens that were the descend from bastard Targaryens. They end up being normalized, and this creates this massive civil war. Between- okay. and, and I think one thing that's that's notable about that is that Blackfire line comes from a marriage, or not a marriage, but like a le- illegitimate relationship between one of the Targaryen kings and House Bracken. Hmm. House Bracken's symbol is or their sigil is a horse 
right? So, uh, and you see the the first thing you see when you go into Vase Doth Rack, both on the show and in the books, are these kind of two towering giant horse statues, which are almost kind of winking at the, this possibility that, okay, well, maybe this part of House Blackfire yeah. that, you know, didn't go extinct or another kind of branch of it formed and maybe intermarried with some sort of, you know, Dothraki thing and kept this kind of, um, uh, this kind of horse sigil alive in a way. And that he's, he's constantly referred to as a horse Lord. And that's exactly what you would refer to someone who is the head of as a horse Lord. And what's interesting is we're also taught in the opening pages about like, about how Targaryens work. And because we're taught about the relationship between Viserys and, and uh, Danny, and they're talking about, well, throughout the centuries, Targaryens have married brother to sister and, you know, relation to keep, to keep the bloodline pure. Right. Well, if, if Illyrio ultimately wants dragons or something else, why is he marrying off a Targaryen to a non-Targaryen to a Dothraki? Seems kind of random. Well, I guess if I was uh, if I was gonna be devil's advocate here, I would say because he doesn't care about Danny, she's a female, and that really he wants he's trying to buy political capital for Viserys. Yeah, I think that's on the surface maybe what's going on, but I think he's also there's an interesting dynamic I think between Viserys and and Danny and Drogo and Illyrio. So let's assume. Let's we'll go out on a limb and we'll just assume that Drogo is a not a secret Targaryen but a secret Blackfire. Okay. Let's also make the assumption that Illyrio is also pro Blackfire. Okay. And so the Blackfire's dream is to basically end the Targaryen line and then maybe restore themselves on the throne of Westeros. Mm-hmm. And so he's taken all this time to basically welcome in these Targaryens, the last of the Targaryens, allegedly, who are actually kind of his sworn enemy. But he's basically kind of welcomed in the last two of them. And maybe he knows that he needs dragons. Maybe he does know about this on some level. And so he's he's kind of like, well, the only available alternative is to wed this one remaining female Targaryen to this Blackfire to uh, keep the the line going. And let's say that Drogo actually knows about his heritage and actually knows he's a Blackfire, but he's kind of keeping mum about it. He would probably loathe and hate Viserys. And that's kind of the relationship they have the entire time is that Drogo is always making fun of Viserys. And in fact, even he's kind of gloating about, you know, making fun of him and making him the quote-unquote cart king and making him ride behind and basically humiliating him before he ultimately decides to kill him. And what seems to be a fit of rage, but is something Hmm. not so much impulsive, but actually seems ceremonial in the end when we later learn that the Blackfire's chief supporters are this this group called the Golden Company. <laughs> and what do they do is they have as their symbol this um, lance where they have all the skulls of the previous commanders dipped in gold. Uh. <laughs> and how does Viserys die? <laughs> yes. He gets- yeah, so there's all this weird little 
symbolism. And it might just be confirmation bias on my part, but I keep picking up on this idea that there's something really weird about this relationship. Drogo just cannot be just some random horse lord. I will say this, Greg. Of all of the theories I've heard, it is not more crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know where you're going. And and so I hey, I am I am willing (laughs) willing to entertain it. Okay. So to your mind, this is just playing with this old rivalry between the Blackfires and the and the Targaryens. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, the first thing we, we learn about Drogo is that Viserys makes the comparison to him looking exactly like, or at least his, what he believes Aegon the Conqueror to look like. That's the first thing we learn about Drogo. Or maybe it's, maybe I can't remember whether it's he who says it or whether it's Illyria who says it, but someone's like, oh, it's, it's Aegon the Conqueror come again. That's the first thing we learn about uh, Drogo. That is so interesting. You know, we also learn about you know, Targaryens and Blackfires who don't have the you know, stereotypical silver hair. Mm-hmm. So they exist out there. Yeah. Um, and we also learn later on in the book, uh, and it's only mentioned once, but it, it's mentioned about how there were there was a ransom or something for when uh, Drogo was a child. There was just some, some conspiracy where people were trying to kidnap him for large sums of money. And it's like, why would you try to, and they were, I think, either Westerosi or some, you know, some sort of strange thing. And um, it's, uh, it's like, why would you want to kidnap, or why would there be this large, you know, price on the head of this random mm-hmm. Dothraki horse lord? And we're also learned that the whole horse lord thing is hardly ever passed down from father to son, right? Oh. So it's basically only, you know, only the strong shall survive. And when one call dies, their children aren't full grown they're put to death in their system the next best warrior is just gonna step exactly up. exactly but that's not the case with with uh, drogo because his father was apparently also a dothraki whore lord which is really unusual and his name even is and this is getting really tinfoily here let me say it and you tell me if i if i'm going where you're gonna go yeah so i'm not i don't think i'm totally on board yet but if there's merit to what you're saying it is odd that Danny names her dragons for two Targaryens, basically, and then names the most powerful one for her dead husband, who's a Dothraki. Yep. I'm pretty convinced that he's, you know, got some Targaryen and or Blackfire blood. That's really... Even the name, even the name Drogo is a variant of Draco, basically kind of Indo-European language root for dragon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds. Yeah, like- I mean, that's 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 clear. And even okay, this is this is the tinfoily thing I was about to say. It was wasn't so much about Drogo's name itself, but actually his father's name is Barbo. And so, if we use naming conventions as being meaningful in some way, yeah. he could have been named after Barbara Bracken, who was the woman who was the basically consort of the whatever Targaryen had, the bastards that formed the Blackfire line. So the mother of all Blackfires, <laughs> uh, the entire Blackfire line is Barbara. And so for, you know, Drog- Drogo's dad to be Barbo and to have all this horse symbolism. Yes, the Dothraki horse lords ride horses everywhere. Yes, they're the best horse riders in the world. But it's also the house sigil of House Bracken. You know, it's like, you know, why, 
why is there all this, you know, symbolism necessary? It just, it just seems really, really interesting to me. So one of the problems with this particular theory is that Drogo comes to naught. The, Drogo ends up dying and he's so so if, if if martin is laying all of this groundwork for this big reveal then then why does why does drogo leave the narrative so then my question is this do you think that miri mazdor's prophecy that drogo will return will actually come to fruition no i don't think so but i do think that the whole point of uh, Drogo's storyline uh, and the fact that he's, you know, or at least I believe he's more important than we were led to believe, mm-hmm. is that he's necessary. He's a necessary sacrifice for the dragon hatching. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, we learn later in the books, and I can't remember who says it, but uh, someone in, very, in passing says it takes two kings or two princes to to birth a dragon or something like that. Huh. Something weird like that. So I think both uh, maybe uh, him and their son um, yeah. uh, were kind of sacrificed in order to birth the dragons. So it's not so much that he, you know, his character development is futile. It's just that he's one of the, you know, he's got, the you know supposed Targaryen blood hmm. to be able to wake the dragon. So his sacrifice was necessary for the dragons to come into the story. So it's not like he just meets he meets a dead end in terms of his you know physical journey. But um, you know, and I, I still think it it also makes me question like is the embodiment of the dragons and the fact that we there's so much skin changing in this book does makes me wonder does part of Drogon's soul or just part of Drogo's soul live on in, in Drogon. Yeah. So, you know, and that's, I don't think anyone really knows for sure about that. Um, but he does seem to have, at least Drogon the dragon seems to have a certain affinity towards Danny that's special or at least more special than the, the other two dragons. So, yeah. Well, gosh, it just, I mean, it it's so, it's, it's such an interesting thing to, entertain and yet there's that's a lot of work to to do for a character that ends up leaving the narrative so early yeah yeah well man that's really fun stuff and now for this week's bird's eye view the segment where i monologue for just a little bit too long For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to talk about not Danny's wedding ceremony, but the wedding ceremony that we wish she could have had as modern people with modern eyes who have been weaned and raised by narratives of love, of, the, of this notion of romantic love and this notion of love preceding marriage. Really, that's what we want as modern readers for all of our characters that we care about in Game of Thrones. And yet they can't have it. They can't have it because romantic love has not been invented yet. Now, let me qualify this. We know that eroticism and the literature of eroticism has been invented. But romantic love is a little bit different. And we may see the seeds of it planted in an ancient 
Bedouin verse called the story of Layla and Majnun. Okay, here's how the story goes, in brief. This is a boy-next-door problem. Majnun loves the girl next door, Layla, whose father is of immense wealth, and of course Majnun is not. And so when he goes to ask for Layla in marriage, the two lovers cannot marry. Layla ends up getting married off to an older, wealthier man, and Majnun then earns his name. That name means possessed or madman. He, he's mad with grief. He's crazy in love with her, but he dies of heartbreak. In fact, as the story goes, they find his corpse leaning against an unmarked grave of a woman. He has no idea what her name was, but he scratched the love poetry onto the grave. In other words, if he can't have his love, he will marry himself to a dead woman and call that dead woman Layla. So yes, mad with grief. This is a story of unrequited love. Okay, so this is a little bit different than eroticism. We don't see their relationship consummated. We just see them in love. Now, this kind of verse becomes very popular around the wealthy men of Baghdad, and they recite it, and they pay poets and singers to sing about it. And of course, this culminates at the height of Moorish Spain. So in the 12th century, what we see is some Italian and French singers and poets being influenced by this more ancient Bedouin love verse, and we call these the troubadours. And finally, what happens is wealthy women want to be entertained by these poets, and these poets will put on a show, and they will fall down in humiliation. And they had a name for this sort of thing, this falling in love sort of thing, and they called it courtly love or fine love, which we call courtship. And this becomes en vogue. This becomes a popular uh, pastime, mostly for entertainment. But as we know, entertainment influences culture. And it's going to take several centuries be before the idea of this falling in love before marriage is popularized. But we see the seeds planted in European culture by the impact of this Bedouin love verse. And there are other love poems in, in the ancient world that might have influenced this. But I choose the story of Layla and Majnun because it also had influence on the famous Derek and the Dominoes hit Layla. And you'll remember that the crooner in Eric Clapton's song is someone who's falling on his knees for a woman named Layla. He's begging her, please, Layla. This is a uh, callback to that poem, Leila and Majnun. This, of course, is what we wish for all of our favorite characters in Martin's narrative, that they could reject or accept their love interest based on their own feelings, their own sense of desire. We want them to fall in love first, but no, we're not going to get that. In fact, almost always, when someone marries for love in this story, it's going to go terribly, terribly wrong. That said, almost all of these marriages go terribly, terribly wrong. But at least we can see why Danny in particular can't have the sort of marriage that we would like her to have. Same thing for Sansa. Same thing for Tyrion. Same thing for Loras. Same thing for Rob. Same thing for Jon Snow. Same thing for 
I mean, is there ever, <laughs> do we ever see an example of a marriage that works out really well? Maybe Ned and Catelyn the closest? <sighs> and that's all I have for this week. Next time on Electric Boogaloo. Well, I think his cowardice, though he overcomes it, his cowardice is uh, is very unattractive. <laughs> um. <laughs>